We have two scripture readings this morning. As we turn to God's word, we're going to be combining them a little bit as we study. We continue our series on Revelation, but we'll do so through a lens of Psalm 75. So first we'll turn to Revelation 18. Revelation 18, the last book of the Bible. We'll read through the first 10 verses and then move towards the end of that chapter and read 19 to the end. Revelation 18, and then we'll turn to Psalm 75. Begin with Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It will be on the screens. If you have a Bible with you or in the pews, please open that Bible up as we study God's Word together. Revelation 18, verse 1, we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city of Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Let me turn to verse 19. It says there, they, they, they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who are slain on the earth. If you have a bookmark or a bulletin or a piece of paper, slip it in for Revelation 18. And then turn with me to Psalm 75. Psalm 75 will be our focus. It will be our text. We'll be referring to Revelation 18 as we do so. Psalm 75. We'll read through the entire psalm. It's 10 verses. To the chief musician set to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. 
But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. That's for the reading of God's word. Our focus again on Psalm 75, but looking through Revelation 18 and seeing the connection between the two as we go. This is still a sermon on Revelation, and we're continuing our theme on Revelation, but doing so through the lens of 70, Psalm 75. Oh, beloved Lord, as we have worked our way through Revelation, we have seen various enemies uh, pictured and described as those who will attack and um, waylay uh, the people of God, those who would desire to follow Christ, those who would desire to live a life uh, for the glory of God. Now, as we've seen that picture painted, we've seen these various enemies of a dragon, a beast from the sea, a beast from the earth. But the last one introduced is the one we're on today and we were also on last week. And it's the idea of Babylon. Uh, Pictured as a woman, it is a depiction of a city. And that city is a picture of all the empires of this world, all the ideas, the temptation, not of uh, what we may find in the church so much. It is a contrast to the bride of Christ, but it's a picture of those who, in essence, follow the beast. They, They don't follow God. And they enjoy all the the splendor and the pleasure of this world. And through that, they try to lead us astray. They try to lead God's people away from Christ through not violence and not propaganda, but seduction. The inviting call that stolen bread is sweet. The idea that sin is enjoyable. The idea that it's not worth following Christ. It's not worth leaving yourself without in this world to gain glory in heaven. Forget heaven and enjoy what you have here and now. And you won't regret it, says this woman. Uh, But as we go on to read and as we see in God's word, this is a lie. And this woman, despite all her promises and all her allure and all her seduction... Uh, despite all her beauty or external beauty, uh, she leads everyone who follows her to death. If we decide to live for the things of this world, if we decide that we would rather have pleasures now, if we decide that our goal is to, to have the best we can right now in this life, and we are following a master that will lead us to death, to destruction. And that's what this woman does. The beautiful thing is that as she's introduced in the book of Revelation, uh, she is introduced as an enemy indeed, but she's introduced as an enemy already beaten. It's as if God doesn't want us for a moment to, to think that her lies are true. As if God doesn't want us for a moment to believe that, that we can actually serve two masters when Christ tells us we can't. He wants us to know from the start what he told to, to Timothy through Paul that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, And out of love for it, some have shipwrecked their faith. And so God warns us that this woman leads to death and shows us from the beginning that she will indeed be destroyed. And therefore, we are to learn that we are to live for God with all our hearts, that we are not to try to compromise a life of zeal and love for Christ with a life that pursues worldliness that we truly can't serve two masters. 
And therefore, when God calls us to serve Christ, we are to serve him with everything we have. And when the world tries to tell us to compromise and to combine a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of living for yourself, we reject it as the lie that it is, and we live for the glory of God. And God shows us that this, this, this struggle, this battle that happens, and it happens in every single life. It happens in the life of those who don't know God as they hear the invitation and the lure of this world to forget all about God and forget their conscience and just enjoy what they have before them. And it happens in Christians. As we daily face the struggle of what it means to live for Jesus, as we daily face the temptation to not be wholeheartedly for Christ and just to begin living a little bit for ourselves. In Psalm 75 and in Revelation 18, God shows us a beautiful truth. He shows us this temptation and this condition of war. It won't go on forever. The day will come when God will shut the door. He will judge the wicked. And that lure to live for self and for sin will be gone. And God's people will be redeemed. And beloved, we will know what it is to find glory through the Son of God who has indeed loved us. In Psalm 75, we see a picture of that judgment. And we see a picture of how in that judgment, God is drawing near to his children. God is drawing near to us to show us who he is and what it means to find our hope in him. We're going to see how God's judgment is a picture and a demonstration of his nearness, his love, and we'll see how this is an occasion for thanks and this is an occasion for repentance. That will be our two points. This is an occasion for thanks and this is an occasion for repentance. We begin with verse 1 of Psalm 75. It begins in these ways, and, and it could almost sound, if you read through the psalm, it's, it's quite a, a harsh or a strong psalm. It's a psalm of judgment. But when you read the first verse, you might actually be a little bit confused, because it sounds like it's a song of praise. And that's why we used it as a call to worship this morning. When we began our service, the first line for the call to worship was from Psalm 75. Because it's remarkable how this psalm, though it is focused on judgment, is a call to praise. And we see that right off the start, when the Lord says to us, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works, declare that your name is near. Now what the psalmist is doing is he's worshiping God, and he's recognizing God is worthy of praise and thanksgiving, but there's a reason why he worships God. There's a reason why he's giving God thanks, and he tells us in verse 1 what it is. Because your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Now, What the psalmist is saying is that everything he sees that God has done, that's God's wondrous works. When we think of what God's wondrous works are, they're everything God has done in this world that show his power. When we think of that, you can think of a few things that might show God's power. You can think of how he made the world. You can look upon the earth, and in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can look at how God made the world and say these wondrous works show us that God is alive and that God is close. When we think of who God is in the Bible, when we think of how God reveals himself, he reveals himself as holy. He reveals himself as dwelling in unapproachable light, a God whom no man has seen nor can see, and yet at the same time, he reveals himself as coming close. He is holy and high above us, and yet the Bible constantly shows how he comes near to us. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, we praise you because though you are high and holy, you show that you are near by the things you do. What this means is as any single human being in this world looks upon creation 
as they look upon the world in which we have lived, they should be able to see by creation, by its intricacy, by the way God has made trees or clouds or rain or sunshine, they should be able to see that God is alive and God is near. When the Bible says your wondrous works declare that your name is near, the idea of God's name is just a picture of who God is himself. And that goes from everything we know about names. If someone says, you know, I don't like Greg Bilsma, right? They say, I don't like Greg Bilsma. They're not saying they have a problem with my name, are they? They're not just saying the way the word Greg sounds sounds kind of silly. I don't like that, you know. No, they're saying they don't like the person, Greg Bilsma, right? That's when they use the name, they're speaking of who that person is. When the Bible said God's wondrous works declare his name is near, it's speaking of all God is. That when we see God's works in the world, we know he is near. We see God is near through his wondrous works, not only in how he made the world, but also in how he upholds it, how he governs it, how he guides it from day to day. He watches over each and every one of us in everything we do. We call this God's providence. How we get up in the morning and we have breath. The day also that we may die. How he guides us when we drive down the road. How he gives us a job and strength to work. And how sometimes he gives us sickness that we cannot work. In all these things, God shows his power. And in all these things, we are to see that he is not only a God far off, but he's a God who comes near. We see it in his salvation most clearly. We see it in his son, Jesus Christ, most clearly. How God sends his son into the world to save sinners. How he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. How he walks among us. The word of God became flesh, says John 1.14, and, and tabernacle dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. In all God's works he shows he is alive, he is real, and he is near. But in this psalm, the focus of God's wondrous works is not merely upon creation or providence or salvation. It is on judgment. This psalm is giving God thanks and praise because his wondrous work specifically in judging evil show that he is a God not merely far off, but a God who is near. If you have your Bibles open, flip with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is an intriguing psalm. The section we're going to begin at is verse 16. And it speaks of a nation, a people, who think that God is not near or God is not holy because he's not judging sin. It says this in Psalm 50, verse 16. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. As God has held off judgment, as God has not punished the wicked, the world sees that and thinks that God doesn't care, that he's not near, that he is not holy, that he's not judging evil. 
But in Psalm 75, what the psalmist is saying is that God's wondrous works, his, his nearness is shown not only in all these things like creation, but also in how he judges. That's why it goes on for the rest of the psalm to speak of judgment. But we'll focus specifically on verses 2 and 3 to start. In verse 2, the Lord says, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Now, as we go through the book of the Bible, as we go through the story of Scripture, we see that there are times in history when God brings judgment upon various situations and sins. We can think of how God brought judgment upon the land of Egypt when Israel was held as slaves under Pharaoh. We can think of how God brought judgment on the land of Babylon after Babylon had conquered Israel and brought his people out as exiles and the Lord sent the Medes and Persians to destroy them. At different times in history, God brings judgment. In the book of Revelation, we began with these seven letters to the churches and many of the churches were warned that if they didn't repent, God would visit them with judgment. Jesus said to them, I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth or I will remove your lampstand from its place. God can bring judgments that are temporal, to certain specific people, to nations, to churches, and even to families. Remember Eli, who was a priest of God, when he did not restrain his sons from evil, and in one day, both Eli's sons and Eli were killed by the providence of God, by the hand of God. God can bring judgment on specific people in specific ways through history. And this can be part of the application of verse 2. When the Lord says, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. That can speak of temporal judgments at certain times in history. But it also speaks of the final judgment. It speaks of that time when God will bring judgment upon everyone who fights against him. Everyone who refuses him. Everyone who will not hear the gospel of Christ. Acknowledge sin and repent to come to the Savior. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 pictures the end and judgment of God upon a society that lives in rebellion against him. And that judgment that God sends upon that society is a rather, it is completely a complete and utter judgment by which they will be destroyed and they'll be destroyed in full. If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 18, you can see that in verse 21. Revelation 18, 21. Children cry sometimes. Look at how the the picture of Babylon's fall is portrayed. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. And if you remember our reading through that, everything about the city is destroyed. Everything good is gone. God is speaking in Psalm 75 of how he has chosen a day that none of us know. But it is a day in history, a certain day on a certain month, at a certain time, in a certain year, when Christ will return. This is not a fiction. This is not a philosophy, some kind of hope that we have that speaks of some kind of idea of a restoration or a revival in a general way. This is an actual act of God that he has set apart. A day when Christ will return and every eye will see him and every person will give an account of their deeds to God. Either an account that will lead to their eternal joy in heaven or an account that will lead to their eternal destruction in hell. And what Psalm 75 is saying 
is that when God judges sin, when God condemns the guilty, whether temporal in history, in the overthrow of a nation, or an ungodly church, or a city, whether temporal or whether the final judgment when Christ returns, he is worthy of praise and he is worthy of thanks because as he judges sin, he shows that he is near and he is holy and he cares for his people. See, why does God judge wickedness? Why does he judge sin? It's because sin and wickedness destroy the goodness of his creation. And sin and wickedness destroy the people he has sent his son to save. You see, when we think about this woman Babylon who leads all the kings of earth, small and great, to follow her and be seduced into sin. This this woman, each and every one of us knows. We've all had experience hearing her seductive voice. We've all had times when her lies have led us away from God and away from Christ to follow what is evil and sinful. And when God finally judges that woman, when God finally removes what would lead his people astray, imagine the day. Imagine the day when you will never be tempted to sin again. Imagine the day when you will never feel as if you want to rebel against God again. And Psalm 75 pictures that day and says, praise him for it. Praise him for the day when God finally judges evil because in that very judgment, you see that God is near, that he loves you, that he cares for his world, that he won't let sin go on forever. We prayed for the church in Uganda this morning. We prayed for those who committed an act of, of, it was a massacre. It was a horrific scene. You can read about it online. It was an act of of no accident. These people came to intentionally kill and destroy literal children of God. And we pray that God would either judge them or bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ who could bear the judgment of God for them. And beloved, on the day when God finally judges evil, That is a day when the church of Christ and the children of God should give God thanks. Because those who fight against the Lord and kill his people and try to lead them astray will lead them astray no longer. But it's also a warning. It's a reminder for us. I'm going to be reading a book we called, uh, mentioned, named Deeper by Dane Ortland. He says this regarding the idea of Christ's coming judgment. He says, Our growth in Christ draws strength from a vivid sense of his imminent return. It's hard to move forward in the Christian life if we allow ourselves to be lulled into the monotonous sense that this world will simply roll on forever as it currently is. One of the things the the woman uses to seduce the church is what we read in Psalm 50, this idea because God doesn't bring judgment. God doesn't care about sin. 
This idea that nothing will ever change. The world will never end. All its glories is just what we have. We have this 50 years, 70 years, 90 years in which we can enjoy the pleasures of this world and nothing will ever change. So enjoy it while you can. The Bible says this is a lie. The Bible says God has set a day for judgment and though the entire earth melts, the Lord upholds its pillars. God is sovereign and you will meet the Lord. The only way to do that, beloved, is to know Christ. That's what brings us to our second point. Our second point. This shows us God's nearness and it shows us thanksgiving we have at his nearness and this also shows us the importance of repentance. What's remarkable about the way the psalm progresses is how the idea of God's reality and judgment leads the psalmist to become an evangelist. The reality of God's judgment leads the psalmist to become an evangelist. He says in verse 4, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. The horn is spoken of a few times in Psalm 75. The horn is a symbol of strength. It is the idea not of a a real strength, perhaps even an arrogant strength, a a perceived strength. When we think of uh, lifting the horn, it's the idea, one man said, it's like a bull tossing his head when God rebukes it. It's, you know, a mighty bull with massive horns and it's strong and powerful. And when the Lord rebukes him, he kind of tosses his head and says, who are you to come against me? To lift up the horn is to pretend that our strength is greater than God's. So he says to the boastful, don't deal boastfully into the wicked. Do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak of the stiff neck. If your Bibles are open, go back to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. What characterizes the woman? What characterizes the scarlet woman who rides upon the beast? We're going to look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says there, Revelation 18, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. What characterizes this woman? She lives in luxury, she lives for today, she pursues the things of this world, but she is convinced that not even God himself can stop her. She is the queen. She is the sovereign. She will not see judgment, she will not see damage, she will never be harmed. She is stiff-necked. She hears the warning of God and she refuses to obey, she refuses to repent. The psalmist, seeing God's coming judgment, is led to turn and say to the boastful, stop being so proud. Stop living as if there isn't a God. Stop thinking that you will never face judgment, that you will go on in this world and you will be the king, you will be the queen, and no one will come against you. Recognize there is a God. Bow your head and repent, because if you do not, you will face a God who comes near in wrath, and you will be lost. The reality of God leads the psalmist to cry out to this very woman who rides upon the beast. The world in opposition to God and tells that world to be boastful, to be arrogant, to be proud no more. We just went through, if you have had your head in any awareness at all, we went through a month of June, which is known in our almost world now as Pride Month. Pride Month. And I want you to forget about the sin of sexuality for a moment which is pictured in that Pride Month. I want you to forget about that. It's not about gay. It's not about lesbian. It's not, that's not first and foremost, which should make us grieve so greatly about a month 
called Pride Month. It's about an exaltation in sin that refuses to hear or bow the neck to a God who is holy and says what is right and wrong. It is a month that celebrates man standing up to God and saying we are our own maker, we are our own savior, we have no need of who you are. And the reality is that this sin is far greater than the sexual sin that stands behind it. It's the sin of arrogance and pride. And it's the sin that lives in every single human heart. And it's the sin that will lead us to condemnation if God's warning will not break our stubborn pride, break our arrogance, and bring us to ask for forgiveness before a holy God. We already went to Psalm 50, and we read from there of how the the people thought. They thought because God didn't judge sin, God was altogether like them. And then the Lord says on, goes on to say, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to save. When the psalmist realizes there is a day that God has set for judgment, it leads him to address the number one sin in the human race. And it is the pride of our hearts that would cause us to reject God and reject his laws and think that we can live however we want to live and there will be no cost and no consequence. Do you know how gracious it is that the command the psalmist gives to the boastful is do not deal boastfully? Do you know how gracious it is is that the command he gives is, is not merely to stop sinning? The call to stop sinning is part of the gospel. Jesus says to those he saves, your faith has saved you, go and sin no more. When you become a Christian, you are called to stop sinning. Yes and amen. But the call to become a Christian is not through the call to stop sinning. The call to become a Christian is the call to stop being proud. Recognize you need a Savior. Recognize you can't get out of the mess you're in. You can't fix your life. You can't love the Lord. You, you, You can't Repent as you ought to repent. You can't hate the things that would lead you to death. A call to become a Christian is a call that doesn't just start the Christian life either. Of course, it goes on the whole time, but it's just the call to, to realize how much you need a Savior. Ask God for mercy and ask God for forgiveness and humble your heart before the Lord. Beloved, this is a command, first and foremost, that we are to receive. You and I, Uh, today. The reality of God's judgment, there is a day when God will come to judge the world. He has appointed it. There's also a day that God has appointed when he will judge you. Not only is there a day when Christ will return, the heavens will be opened, and the Lord will descend, and this earth will be consumed in fire, and we'll all be brought to stand before the Lord, but there's a day when you will be called to die. There's a day when you'll be called to come before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And your good works won't save you. And your church attendance won't save you. 
And your strength and your devotions won't save you. The only thing that will save you is Christ. And the command of God is for us to realize that. And therefore to rend our hearts and not our garments. To acknowledge our sin. To acknowledge how far short we have fallen from the glory of God and how much we need Christ. The text goes on to speak of how exaltation comes neither from east or west. You, you can't lift yourself up. God is the one who puts one down and exalts another. And then it gives a justification for this. 4, verse 8, In the hand of the Lord there's a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. This cup has reflection in Revelation 18 as well, but we're not going to have time to look at that. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. God's wrath is pictured as a cup, In Revelation 18, it is pictured as a cup which the woman deserves to drink. She has given it to others. Now she must drink it herself. The fruit of her own actions will lead to her own destruction. That's what this cup is pictured as. But this cup is also the wrath of God. And the reason why God is the only one who can put down and the only one who can exalt uh, is because in his holiness he will punish sin. But the reason humility is the path to salvation is something that we all know if we stand in Christ. If we've been attending the church for a while, this is not anything new. And yet, beloved in the Lord, it can be overlooked, it can be minimized, it can be failed to be appreciated, it can be remembered and then forgotten. And it's something that should never be forgotten. The reason humility leads to salvation, the reason repentance leads to grace, is because the cup of the Lord's wrath has been poured out on another. There is none of us here who should not fear a day where God will judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is none of us here who should not fear a day in ourselves when God will lay bare everything we've ever done and the reason we've done it and the thoughts we had in our head while we did it. God will judge us for all we have ever done. And that judgment, beloved, is a bar at which every single person here would fail to the uttermost. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gospel message is that Jesus Christ has drunk the judgment of our sins to the very bottom. He has taken the wrath of God against all we've done and he has fully satisfied it, met every ounce of pain, every measure of cursing, every measure of condemnation. So when we bow our knees to God and acknowledge we need grace, grace can be given us by a God who is both just and merciful through his Son. The reality of God's judgment leads the psalmist to bring a message to the boastful. And this is a message that you and I have to hear. The number one sin in our hearts that will lead us away from God is pride. The number one sin. And it can be slain only at the cross. But after we've heard this message, beloved, it's also a message we have to give. 
The psalmist speaks to the boastful, to the arrogant, to the proud. It says, be boastful no more. Beloved, we have a world who thinks they don't need God. We have a world who sits as kings and queens and thinks they will never face sorrow. Revelation 18, verse 7. They think there will never be a change in this world. It would just go on as it always has been. Therefore, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And God desires to extend mercy to them. And he shows them this in the cross of Christ. But the only way to find mercy is to acknowledge pride and humble the heart. The psalmist ends with a declaration of God's praise. As God shows himself holy and judges the wicked and saves the humble, he is worthy of all praise. Beloved in the Lord, as we consider God's word this morning, as we consider living in a world where this scarlet woman tempts and lures astray, as we consider living in a world that prides itself in pride. We don't see any sin in the world that we don't find also in our own hearts. And there is no sin in the world or in our own hearts that God will not judge in holiness. But we also see no sin in the world or in our own hearts that God in Christ would be unwilling to forgive and cleanse and heal. May we know the reality of a God who judges evil and will indeed come one day to judge the living and the dead. And may we know what it is to give a message of his grace to rebuke the proud, to rebuke the arrogant, to rebuke the arrogance in us and to rebuke the arrogance in others, to find hope to find salvation, to find forgiveness through the Son of God who indeed is the only one who could take away the sin of the world. Let's join together in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you will anchor in our hearts the reality of your coming judgment. Now, Father, the scarlet woman will be thrown down, the beast of the sea and the earth will be destroyed, the dragon will be tossed into the lake of fire. So also, Lord, will face judgment all the humans of the earth. Every single one of us will come before the judgment seat of God, for you have set a day where you will judge the living and the dead. We pray, Lord, that this would lead us only out of ourselves and into Christ. We pray that this would take away from us any type of self-righteousness or, or marshalling of our good deeds or how we have worshipped you or gone to church, but instead, Lord, lead only to acknowledgement of our complete failings, and our complete need for a Savior. We pray, Lord, that you will not allow us to stand in arrogance on the day of judgment, but allow us to know the hope that is found only in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we may bring this message to the world. That, Father, we may be able to say to the boastful, do not be boastful, do not lift up your horns against the Most High. A day of judgment is coming. And we pray in your grace that we may see that people may come to know the reality of the God who exists and who is near. That, Father, when they see the wages and the consequences of sin, that they may find hope and they may find repentance in Christ. 
And thus we may rejoice in the lambs that you bring on your shoulders back to the fold of God. Father, will you so lead us and guide us that we may know what it is to be humble before your sight, that we may know what it is to call the world to humble itself before a sovereign God, that we may know you, the only true God, and we may know that you are near in judgment and you are near in grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.